You turn with me uh, to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 7. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. It's not a very fun passage. Uh, Ephesians 5, 1 to 2 is very affirming, very encouraging. Paul says, you are dearly loved children, dearly loved. Jesus gave himself up for us. Be his children. Be imitators of God. But then you get to verse 3. And Paul goes on and he says, don't do this. Don't do that. Don't, don't even, there shouldn't be a hint of this. Don't even be partners with people who do these things. If you do these things, you don't have any place. There's no inheritance for you in the kingdom of God. Now, that's a completely different tone. I mean, you start out, you are children, you are loved. God dotes on you, and, and Jesus offers himself to you. Verse 2, Jesus Christ offered himself. He fulfilled all the obligations that we owe to God, so God is completely satisfied. This is beautiful. We call this atonement. We call this propitiation. Those are very technical terms. Propitiation, expiation. These are beautiful words, beautiful language, beautiful language, beautiful words of grace, but the Apostle Paul doesn't stop there. Verses 3 to 6, straight up, he tells you, no, you can't do this. You can't do that. Very important. Very important. Verses 1 to 2, Paul talks about the thrill of being a Christian. The thrill of being God's child. But then, verses 3 to 7, Paul talks about the responsibility, the calling the commitment that we have as God's children. We love doctrines of grace. We love talking about being saved by grace alone. We love teachings about adoption. We love teachings about sonship. We love teachings about God's love. But we naturally avoid teachings about repentance, about obedience, about law, about truth. Now, people tend to emphasize one of the two things. We tend to emphasize love without truth or truth without love. The problem is love without truth is not real love, and uh, truth without love is not real truth. We need both. So we're going to go into both today. There are three things we're going to learn. We're going to say why. We're going to talk about why Paul says no. Why Paul says don't do this, don't do that. What are those things? We're going to go into those briefly today. And lastly, where do you get the power to do these things? How do you do these things? So the why, the what, the how. First, we're going to go into the why. Jesus obeyed the law perfectly, uh, which means that he obeys the law on one hand. He takes on the penalty 
of our failures, the penalty of our disobedience, the penalty of the law on the other hand. And so Jesus Christ gets arrested. Even though he commits no sin, even though he commits no crime, Jesus Christ is beaten, Jesus Christ is betrayed, Jesus Christ is mocked, Jesus Christ is crucified on the cross, and Jesus Christ receives the full penalty of the law, the full wrath of God. The Bible says we are in union with him. That means that when Jesus died, when Jesus dies for you, that becomes personal to you. You died with him. You died with him. You're in union with him. And because Jesus died, you are clean. Because Jesus died, you are set free. Because he is righteous, you are righteous. Because he is pure, you are pure. Because he is free, you are free. The debt is paid. Jesus says, it is finished on the cross. That means that you have access. Because Jesus Christ was denied, you have access. Because Jesus Christ lost the intimacy with God on the cross, you now have intimacy with God on the cross. That means this is the end of guilt. This is beautiful. This is the end of guilt. But it's also the end of self-hatred. Because no failure, we hate ourselves. There's this tremendous self-loathing. We just beat ourselves up when we make a mistake. But this is the end of self-hatred because there's no failure that you can commit that will ever separate you from the love of God. You are accepted. There's nothing that could ever separate you from God's approval. Union. And because of this union, the sweetness of Jesus, the obedience of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus is applied to you. The law has been fulfilled, and the righteousness of Jesus, union, has been applied legally to you, credited to you. We are heirs of God's kingdom. But because of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit is now in your life, organically living in you, you actually are becoming righteous. If you're all about the thrill, if you're all about the love of God, without any responsibility, without understanding or sensing the call of God, that leads to a very shallow growth a very shallow spiritual character. You're not going to grow, actually. You're going to remain a baby. You're going to remain an infant. If you're all about the responsibility, if you're all about the calling, without the thrill, without the love of God that you experience regularly in your life, you're equally, not a little bit less, you're equally shallow. Look, if you're a Christian, your sins can't condemn you. They won't condemn you. But now you have this very special relationship with God, a very special relationship with the Father. So much that when you sin, right, your sins now are hurtful to God. If your best friend, if your best friend commits adultery, it hurts you. Even though it's not a sin against you, it hurts. There's a pain that you experience because you have a very special relationship with that person. But if your spouse commits adultery, it's a completely different level. Why? Because that relationship that you share with your spouse is that much more intimate, that much more intense. In a sense, now it destroys you. So verses 1 to 2 describes that beauty, that thrill, that intimacy, that intensity of relationship. But verses 3 to 7, it describes that calling, that responsibility. And you need both. A Christian is about any relationship to the degree that you have intimacy in that relationship, 
there is a greater sense of calling and responsibility in that relationship. You need both. If you have both in your life, you will grow. That's why Paul talks about this. We've been talking about putting off sin and putting on Christ for the last several weeks. And this now comes out as an overflow. Chapter 5 is an overflow of that teaching. And so basically what Paul's saying is if you only have one, if you only have the beauty and the thrill of a relationship, but not the other, not the responsibility and the call, you're going to die. It's not that you'll just stop growing, you will die. Anything that stops growing is dying, right? As an example, there are people, even in this congregation, who are suffering from the abuse of substances, substance abuse. Now, you know that support groups are helpful. You know that the steps are helpful. They are helpful. They're important. They're actually necessary. But in the end, if you don't say no, you will die. Support groups are helpful. Friendships, relationships, connecting with people, very helpful. The steps are very helpful, but in the end, you need to say no. People are going to be very loving. People are incredibly supportive. You are connecting with these people. It brings you life, but in the end, there is a responsibility. There's love and thrill. There's a responsibility. When you become a Christian, you may experience love. You may experience tremendous support in the church, but there's also times as a Christian, very nature of being in community, there's pain. There's a fight. There's battle. And then there's that internal pain and fight and battle with sin. And if there's no battle, if there's no fight, if there's no struggle in your faith, it's probably because your faith is shallow or there's no faith. You see, that's the why. That's why Paul goes into this and tells us, no, you have to say no. Now, two, second point, the what. We're going to go into these three things because there are three things that Paul talks about here. Verse three, he says, there must not be even a hint of these things. Verse 3, sexual immorality and impurity. Both the act of immorality and the thinking. That's what he talks about when he says impurity. So he says, in your actions and in your thinking. Number two, he talks about greed. If you look at other translations, it's probably more true to the actual word in the Greek. He talks about covetousness. And then verse 4, the third thing, he talks about obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking. Basically, he's talking about the way we speak our speech. Verse 5, it says, if you are given to these things, there's an idolatry. Verse 6, he says, these are empty words. Now, before you get into these three things, let's look at the three as a whole, okay? Because look at what he's saying. Verse 1, Paul is not distinguishing between sexual immorality, which is a social integrity, and your covetousness, your materialism, which is a personal integrity. He doesn't divide the two. If you look at it, he treats them the same, equally. They go together. See, God is very bold. He's bold enough to say on one hand, I'm your father. That is very bold, right? He says, we have that kind of a relationship. I'm doting on you. I'm loving. I gave up everything. I gave up my life. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, we don't even want to fathom losing any of our children because we know that if they die, then there's a part of us that will be changed forever. We die. So the Father is saying, I gave up everything. I gave up my life for you. But on the other hand, he says, and because I'm your Father, no. 
don't do this. You can't say this. You can't do this. You can't think this. You can't even want this. Very bold. Because on one hand, Paul's saying that we look at sexual immorality of the three, we say, well, that's the worst one. But Paul looks at that just as serious as your materialism, just as serious as, as your gossip, you see. He says, I don't even want to see a hint of these things. They're all treated the same. Verse 3, he talks about sexual immorality. That's the action. He's, that's, he's talking about what you do. Impurity, he talks about what you're thinking. Obscenity, he talks about what you're talking about. And they actually kind of go together because if immorality is what you're doing and impurity is any thought that leads to the action and obscenity is any talk that promotes the thinking. You see, Jesus says, love the Lord your God. The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your... The disciples, they ask him, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, and you are God's children, so submit to him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. You know, whenever you love something, you protect it. That's why Jesus is our good shepherd, because if he loves you, he says, I'm going to lay my life down for you. I'm going to protect you with everything I've got. Why does Paul tell you to protect your sex life? Why does Paul tell you to protect your mind, what you think about, your words? It's because, think about this, the things that you value most, you will protect. You will protect it with everything that you've got. You will protect it. You will secure it. You will watch over it. You will shepherd over it. You will rule it. Now, what are we saying here? God doesn't have a low view of your mind. Clearly, God does not have a low view of your speech. God doesn't have a low view of your body. He has the highest view of your mind and your speech and your body. And that's why he wants integrity in all those things. The word integrity, we talked about that. That's an integer. It comes from the word integer, whole. That your inside and your outside would be the same, held together. That's the reason why. So we got to look at those things all together. Now we're going to go to them. Let's look at these individually, and we'll spend some time, just brief time on this. Number one, covetousness. We live in a time when we say, what I do with my body is my business. That's a private thing. But we need social reforms. We need to make people more accountable. CEOs and these big billion-dollar companies, we need to hold them accountable with our money, right? Now, of course, there's other people who say, well, actually, what I do with my business, what I do with my wealth, that's private, but we need to address people out there who are sexually immoral. It's killing our city. It's, it's destroying our lives and our teenagers here today. The Bible doesn't do any of that. The Bible says this. You're accountable in both. You're accountable with your money. And you're accountable with your, your bodies, your sex life. The Bible says they're both equally important. And Paul here says you got to put off immorality. you got to put off materialism. And you got to put on generosity. See, when Paul says, don't be covetous, don't be materialistic, put those things off, what he's saying is, you're called to be generous. You're called to put on generosity. What are the signs of greed? I'm going to give you just, I'm just going to run through. I spent some time thinking about what are the signs of greed? You know, you've got to look at yourself. 
You got to do some self-reflection. You got to read. You put these things together. I'm just going to kind of summarize. Um, if you're boastful of what you have, if you're boastful of what you own, if you're boastful of what you just bought, if you're boastful of what you, when you give, you're boastful about it. When you're stingy, when you have less, you give when you have, but you're stingy when you have less. I think uh, our community groups, not too long ago, we read something from Tim Keller uh, about money, how we handle money. And I think there was one part that was very riveting because Tim Keller says that um, when you're greedy, you're actually robbing God of that which he already owns. You're stealing from him, right, when you're not generous. So when you're stingy when you have less, when you're envious of people who have more, when you're almost happy when people that you are envious of lose something or suffer, when you worry, because that robs you of your joy and your gratitude when you worry. You see the battle? Covetousness kills generosity. That's very natural. We're born that way. So it, only a supernatural work of God will actually bring your generosity back to life. Now, why does Paul say don't do these things? It's because we're imitators of God, verses 1 to 2. We are imitators of God. We're children of God. So even though you cannot uh, represent or reflect the, what we called last week the incommunicable attributes of God, that means that these are things that you can't acquire. You are not self-sufficient. And so even though you can't reflect the self-sufficiency of God, God is a content God. God is a satisfied God. That means his children can be content. His children can be satisfied. So when you reflect, when Paul says, be imitators of God in your generosity, in your giving, no matter what you have. Listen, 10%, the tithe, 10% of anybody's salary is a lot of money. It doesn't matter if you're, make, if you're starting out at entry level or you're a multi-billionaire, 10% of your salary is a lot of money to anybody. And the Bible is, has an interesting way of defining uh, what giving is, what generosity is. Because sometimes it talks about 10%. Sometimes you have a widow with two coins, you see. So that's covetousness. Two, uh, Paul talks about obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking. Paul says, you are imitators of God. Children of God, imitate God. That means that you have to be careful about your speech. You have to be careful about your humor even. Now, what's foolish talk? Because literally that word foolish talk in the Greek, it means weightless talk, thoughtless talk. Verse 6, he says, these are empty words. Are your words giving life to people? Do your words give life to people? Are you nourishing in your words to other people? I mean, it's not even always fun. Nourishing words aren't always fun words. Are you challenging other people? Some of us are very good at encouragement but we're very, we lack the ability to challenge people. And that means that you're only 50% of the way there, you see. Some of us are very good at challenging people, but our words are always heavy, and they're never warm. Are your words giving life to people? Can, can people chew on your words and find life and encouragement and laughter and, and wisdom and kindness? Even in your joking, or is your language forgettable? Because if your language is forgettable, what does that mean? That means you are a forgettable person. Your speech comes. The Bible says your speech comes as an overflow of your heart. So if your words are thoughtless, 
If your words are, are empty, you are empty. You're an empty person. That's what the Bible's saying. Paul's literally talking here about our humor, but it's, it's really weird because the nature of humor is that it's not supposed to be that serious, and yet for a Christian, it's important that even in our sense of humor, because these are words that are overflow of our hearts, it has to, we have to have a renewed sense of humor. For someone whose life has not been shaped by the gospel, there's always going to be something that is too sensitive, too serious to joke about. You can't joke about certain things. Things like your body, things like uh, your wealth, things like your appearance, your salary, your careers, your family, because you live for these things. And so we protect these things that we live for. We're going to protect these. These things are sacred, sacred cows in our lives. You don't go there. You can't joke about these things. But for a Christian, nothing is sacred except for what? Your relationship with the Father. You will protect that with everything that you've got, you see. And so Paul says there must not even be a hint of obscenity, not even a hint of foolish talk, not even a hint of coarse joking, but rather thanksgiving. Why? Because a person who's grateful a person who lives out of gratitude is truly attractive. You are literally reflecting the beauty of God. Your winsomeness reflects the beauty of God. When you gossip, when you gossip, when there's obscenity, no one looks at a person who gossips. They may not say that to you, but it's there. No one looks at a person who gossips and says, what an attractive gossiper. No one says that. No one looks at a person and, and who, who yells out an obscenity and says, that is so attractive to me. I love the way you curse. No one says that, right? No one says, what drew me to this person? I mean, when I first met this person, it was the way they cursed. It got me. No one says that, right? No one says that. Those things aren't winsome. Those things aren't attractive. My favorite preacher, Tim Keller, right, he says... Christians, well, I'm kind of paraphrasing what he said. Christians, little by little, bit by bit, they erode in self-importance by the Spirit of God. I love that. They erode in self-importance by the Spirit of God. What does that mean? If you want to apply that a little bit, eventually what that means is your sarcasm, your cutting humor, it will die down. Can you commit to that? It will die down. Tim Keller says, uh, a Christian's, they slowly erode in their self-loathing, their self-hatred, because they're children of God, really. Essentially, that's what he's saying. Because you are ch- that's a whole new self-image, a whole new way of viewing yourself. And so your cynicism, no matter what you've experienced, your cynicism, your self-deprecation, your self-hatred, that humor will die down. The Bible says your words are an overflow of your heart. You know what that means? I learned this from somebody who's just had a great influence. Their writing has had a great influence in my life. Um, You take a cup, and there's water in the cup. And uh, you take a fist, and you knock over that cup. What comes out? Water comes out. And you say, what happened here? All of us focus on the fist. You see, the fist hit the cup, and that's why the cup kind of did that. Right? But what you forget is that the reason why water came out of the cup is because Water was in the cup in the first place. If there was orange juice in the cup, 
orange juice would have come out. If there's anger in the cup, anger would come out. The fist is just a trigger. There was anger already in there. The hatred is already in there. You see, the self-loathing was in there. The covetousness is in there. The coarse joking, the obscenity, the foolish talk is what comes out. You see. God is humble. God, our Father, is pure in heart. God, our Father, has tremendous integrity. He is whole. And so as imitators of God, reflectors, reflections of God as His children, we must demonstrate humility in our speech. Humility. So we talked about the covetousness. We talked about the obscenities, our speech. We talked about then how we think. We talked about how we speak. This is, the, in some ways, the grand finality. We have to talk about sexual immorality here. Because throughout thousands of years of history, no matter what faith you're in, thousands of years of history, human history, have said that ultimately sex was designed by God to be used as an expression of love only in the context of marriage for thousands of years. Today we look back, we're very arrogant as a generation because now what we do is we kind of revise things and we look at things, we look at history and we say, oh, that was then. We're just going to discount thousands of years of history. And we, we, we kind of discount that and we say that was old. That's the old way. Those are, those are primitive thinkers. That's arcane, so arcane. And we kind of let go of how carefully, generation after generation, they treated sex. Now, the word uh, in verse 3, sexual immorality, is the Greek word porneia. That really means fornication. We don't really use that word a whole lot anymore, right? The act of sexual immorality, sin, fornication. It's different from the word adultery. That's a completely different Greek word. Usually one leads to the other, right, in a sense. The thinking of one impurity will lead you to another. But really, uh, it's, it's a broader term um, because, uh, and, you know, fornicators and, and adulterers tend to, they're put usually next to each other, but they're not the same thing. Fornication is broader. It means sex between people who are simply just not married to each other. The air conditioner turned off. God wants you to hear. God wants you to listen, okay? Uh, Sex between people who are not married to each other. Why does the Bible say that? Keep in mind, okay? God is not saying sex is dirty. God is not saying that, that your body is dirty. The Bible says that God created man and women, men and women, to be imitators of the type of relationship that he himself has with his people. Because God loves his people. God honors his people. We look at people and their brokenness and we say, I mean, they're great, but they got, you know, they have this and they have that and, you know, it kind of shapes the way we love them sometimes because we have a very broken love, but that's not God. God is whole. God looks at his people the way a father looks at his child. No matter how broken your children are, you see all their flaws because you're their parent. But do you love them less? Actually, you love them more. You, you, a father looks at his child, no matter what sin, no matter what error, and 
they embrace him more. A good father would do that. They embrace you more. Now, we're broken in the way we talk. We're broken sometimes in the way we think most of the time. But that love, we're reflecting a communicable character of God, something that we can't acquire, you see? And the Bible says that God loves his people. God honors his people, much like a father. In fact, you see father illustrations everywhere in the Bible. And if you're new to the Bible, you'll notice that there's actually lover illustrations all over the Bible. God loves us. Jesus loves us as a lover, as a bridegroom. He calls himself our bridegroom, our true bridegroom. And so sexual love is a wonderful analogy. It's a wonderful illustration of that relationship between Jesus and his church. Through the act of sex, God is saying real love comes out of total commitment, not self-fulfillment. Now, we've taken, in our generation, we've taken the liberty to say that actually sex is more about self-fulfillment than about commitment. And we've, very, we've developed a broken generation of young people and older people now uh, in, our, in our world. You know, I, I, was, I was blown away. I grew up as a teenager of the 80s. You know, uh, Madonna, was, she broke every social barrier in many ways. Uh, and uh, as a lover of music, I mean, I, I you know, always listen to her music. She is, always has a great way of reinventing music. And, and, you know, I guess that time has kind of passed for her. But she lived and demonstrated breaking every social barrier in many ways uh, in the world. You know, she was an icon. But after having children, in a very candid interview, Madonna says, I have filled with regrets about my sex life in the past. Do you know that? Uh, Sexual love is a wonderful analogy of that relationship between Jesus and his church. Through sex, God is saying real love grows out of commitment, not self-fulfillment. God's relationship with his church is so intimate, so singular. There's so much access, and it's so sacred that giving to you in any other context, but fully, all of himself, totally committed, permanently committed, giving to yourself outside of that is not a part of his character. When he gives you, he gives you all of himself, totally permanently. Jeremiah 31 says, I love you with an everlasting love. That means that his love is faithful because he is faithful. And God says, I want you in my life, not so that you could just come to me to get things from me, right? I don't want you to just date me. He says, you are my bride. The church is the bride of Christ, He says, I want you in my life not to use me, but to serve me and so that I can serve you wholly and totally and permanently. What kind of commitment is that? Now, when someone comes to you and says, I love you, your spouse comes to you and says, I love you totally and permanently in a committed way, wholly, eternally, do you respond and say, you are one crazy person. You are irrational right now. Is that what you say? No, your heart softens to that love. Because they're not just words. Married couples, I mean, you know over the years of your life, you've seen through all the ups and downs, total commitment, sacrifice, holy, loving. That's the reason why Jesus 
speaks against divorce, right? Outside of, uh, there are some qualifiers there, right? But apart from that, he says, I, you are so wholly committed to one another, permanently. Anything apart from that is not a part of God's character. When you're in love, true love, you want the person. You want their heart. C.S. Lewis, uh, he kind of says, I'm paraphrasing him, but merely what he says, when you see a person and they're on the prowl, we know people like that, they're on the prowl, they're horny, right? They want sexual pleasure as the cure for their loneliness. You know, you you see a man, he's on the prowl, uh, he he doesn't want the woman. What he wants is pleasure, and that woman is really a commodity by which he will get that pleasure. He wants a thing, and that's why we call it the objectification of our culture. We objectify one another in that way because we want things from that person. That person's just a commodity. What's the difference between lust and love? Because if you come to God and you say, listen, God, I mean, I hope this isn't our prayer during our private confession, but you go to God and you say, you know, God, I, I, I'm praying, I tithe, I go to church, now you owe me. This is what I want from you. I've given you what you want from me. This is what I want from you. You see, when you pray like that, when you come to God like that, there will never be joy. There will never be intimacy. There is no thrill. There's just this mechanical relationship. It's like almost like a, a business relationship, an employer-employee relationship. And in that case, I'm not even sure who the employer is, you see. But if you come to God because you're enraptured by his love for you. And so you respond, and you just love and delight in the Father. And you see how much he's given to you. He's given all of himself totally and permanently and wholly to you. And so you want to give yourself totally and completely to him. And because he has given you everything, he's come to the cross, he died for you, then when you see that, then comes the intimacy. You know what lust is? Lust is all about control. Lust is all about manipulation. Lust is all about objectifying the person because you want certain things from that person. And so a man and a woman, right, they're lonely, they come together, and there's just self-fulfillment in mind. That's the cure. So really lust is wanting fulfillment for yourself. You're not thinking for that other person. That's why Paul says you got to put that off. you got to put off sexual immorality. Put off even the impurity. There must not even be a hint. So put off the impurity. Put off the obscenity. I mean, do you think God says, now, I'm going to pour out myself to you. I'm going to give everything to you. I'm going to give you all of my love, everlasting love. But, you know, you don't have to commit to me fully. You don't have to give yourself to me fully. You don't have to give yourself to me singularly. You know, don't worry about that. You know, you think that's what God says? Or do you think God says to you, okay, we're in a relationship now, right? Um, but uh, I want you to be totally committed to me, permanently, holy, all of yourself I want you to give to me. But I get to do what I want with my body, with my heart, with my soul. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and, and do whatever I want with that. Is that what he says? No, that's not what God says. God says this is not about feelings. This is not about fulfillment. This is not about what makes me feel good. If you want oneness with me, it has to be total because I'm giving myself totally to you. We are married. That's what he says. 
In the same way, if you look at somebody else and you say, I'm going to, I'll say it this way, you know, because no one says it better, I, I think, than in our generation than, than Tim Keller. He says this, if you, I want physical oneness with you. I want sex with you. But I don't want emotional oneness with you. I don't want financial oneness with you. I don't want marital oneness with you. I want, I want to pour out my love to you physically, but not in a singular way, not in a totally committed way, uh, not completely, certainly not permanently. That's irrational. That's crazy if you think about it. That's crazy. Because what he's really saying, what that person is really saying to you, what that, uh, what that woman or that man is really saying to you is, I don't want to bind myself to you so that if you hurt, then I hurt. I don't want to own that. If you grieve, I grieve. I don't want to own that. I don't want to commit to you in a way where you're totally committed to me and I have to be totally committed to you. I don't want that kind of commitment. Too much pressure. I, I'm young. There's, there's a lot of uncertainties in life. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't want that. We have a lot of people today, there's a whole phenomenon of cohabitating, people living together as kind of a practice before they get married, right? What is that? Mainly what you're saying is, uh, I'm not willing to make the commitment, but I want to demonstrate physically all the, all the elements of commitment without committing, you see. I just want intimacy, with, I want thrill without the responsibility. You would never play with fire that way. You would never take a fire and say, oh, it's so beautiful, it's so warm, but then treat it irresponsibly because what happens? You get burned. You could die. You could destroy yourself. You could destroy people around you. To have physical oneness without total oneness, which is what sex represents, that's a disaster. It's a train wreck because it represents total, total oneness, complete, permanent, everlasting oneness. That's what it represents. And so when you play around with that, you're playing around with someone's total makeup. It's going to destroy them. It's going to destroy you. The Bible says, what Paul's saying here is, let's protect that. Shepherd over that. Shepherd over your body. Imitate God. Be his children. Think about this. When you take relationships, I mean, you can be angry with somebody. But if you take matters into your own hands, especially at the height of your anger, the height of your pride. Does the Bible allow you to take that into your own hands? And so if you take it to the extreme, you can murder somebody. You can abuse somebody, right? Or you can have sex with somebody. What you're demonstrating there is you're saying, I am omnipotent. I can do anything because this is mine. This is my body. These are my hands. But you're not, and you can't ever be omnipotent. And even if you were, just having omnipotence without omniscience, all wisdom, all knowledge, that would make you a tyrant. That would make you a tyrant, a dictator. Trying to be, you're trying to be God when we're called to be imitators of God. They're very different. We talked about that last week. When you imitate God, you are reflecting qualities, characteristics of God that you can demonstrate. His faithfulness, his love. And that goes against immorality. That goes against adultery. You can demonstrate characteristics such as contentment, satisfaction. That goes against envy. That's going to go against worry, materialism, pride. You can demonstrate integrity. You can demonstrate humility. That's going to go against obscenity. It's going to go against gossip and coarse talk. How do you do it? 
Where do you get the power to live like that? Because we are such failures across the board here. How many people here can look at this as an assignment and homework and say, I've passed, I've done well this week? We've all failed in every one of these areas, right? Adultery, envy, immorality, impurity, impurity, obscenity, coarse talk, uh, foolish talk, coarse joking. They're based on impulses, hungers, cravings. Today in our world, we live in a time where we say, hey, as long as you're pursuing your hunger, as long as you're pursuing your craving, right, let you be you, let you do you, right? Our culture today tells us that you should, be pursue, you should be pursuing these things. You should be going after these things. But in the book of Hebrews, in the Bible, it says quite the opposite. The book of Hebrews says that's what Esau was like. Esau was like that. He always fed into his cravings. So what happens? He sells his birthright. Why? Because he was hungry. What does Jesus say that we should hunger after? What does Jesus say we should actually hunger after? He says, Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. When you hunger after righteousness, what you're saying is, I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to put aside my impulses. I'm willing to limit myself. We live in a culture that says, you have no limits. You're saying, I'm willing to limit myself. I'm willing to lower myself. Jesus says, when you go for that, you are blessed. If you just go for the blessing up front, feed your impulses, you're not going to get the blessing, nor are you going to get the righteousness. And Jesus knows why. We know that Jesus knows. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in the wilderness, and he's hungry. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. And Satan comes up to him, and Satan says, I know a way that you can get the blessing, and you don't have to sacrifice. In fact, three times Satan approaches Jesus and says, I know a way that you can have all the blessings and you don't even have to die. You don't have to sacrifice. You don't have to limit yourself. You don't have to lower yourself. You don't have to give of yourself. You know how Jesus answered? And he has been hungry for 40 days. He's, he has been hungry without food for 40 days. Jesus Christ says, man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan says, but you can protect yourself. You can save yourself. You can indulge. And Jesus says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus passed every test, and he passed every test. Passing every test involves sacrifice and the word of God. Those two were merged in every passing of every test. And on the cross, what do you see? Do you see the thrill of relationship on the cross? Do you see the, the blessing of relationship on the cross? Do you see the, the joy and the uh, thrill and the adventure of relationship on the cross? No, what you see is the calling and the sacrifice and the responsibility. A parent would understand that, right? Uh, a father would understand that. A husband or a wife would understand that. Jesus Christ is on the cross there are tears because parents have cried for their children. All of you who are parents, you've cried for your child, I'm sure at least once. We labor for the things we love, for the people we love. 
Jesus is on the cross and he's crying and he's laboring and he's sweating and he's groaning and he's grieving and there's pain. And even before that, he's at Gethsemane and he's sweating and he's crying and he's laboring and he's groaning. And even before that, he's looking out at his people in Jerusalem and he's crying and he's sweating and he's groaning and he's grieving. And on the cross, he's doing all these things. He's doing all these things. And he's suffering, he takes on the pain and the wrath of God. He takes on the pain of God because of sin. And he takes on the wrath of God because of his anger. To the degree that you love somebody, parents, to their children, fathers to their children, husbands to their wives, wives to their husbands, to the degree that you love somebody, you will experience tears and you will experience labor. You understand what it means to sweat and to groan and to grieve and experience pain, even if you are not the one committing those things. Because your child, because the person you love is experiencing these things, you will experience all those things. But Jesus Christ didn't just experience it physically on the cross. He experienced it emotionally. He experienced it financially. He gave up everything. Philippians, the author of Philippians is Paul. The Apostle Paul, and he says he emptied himself. He gave himself, that means he gave himself of all, he gave of himself all of his economy. And he gave of himself his relationship with the Father. On the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father and I are one. I am in him, and he is in me. And yet on the Father, they were completely torn apart. And so what Jesus Christ is saying on the cross, he's saying, now I'm not just physically separated from you. Jesus Christ limited himself. Jesus Christ lowered himself when he came down. He was born in a manger. He wasn't born on a throne. He was born in a manger. And so in that most vulnerable state when he was born and now in that most vulnerable state when he's dying, everyone's mocking him. They betrayed him. They rejected him. And now the Father has turned his face away from him. Jesus says, now I'm not just physically separated from you, I'm emotionally separated from you. I'm financially separated from you. I've lost my sonship. I've lost my relationship with the Father. Why? So that you could experience the thrill of your relationship with the Father. The Father can delight in you because he has rejected his son. The Father, gave, Jesus Christ gave up everything for you so that you could enjoy the richness of being in him. God is now your father. Jesus is now your lover. Jesus is your bridegroom. Jesus is your husband. And not once did he go on the cross and he said not, there was not even a hint of regret. Not once did he think about cheating on you. Not once did he say, oh, if I chose this person instead of this person, I'd be in a better place. Not once did he sit there and he, he'd think about impure thoughts. He was pure. Never once did he coveted what he didn't have. Never once did he worry because he trusted, even into his death, that God is faithful and good. Even when we doubt, even when we're in guilt, even when we're just suffering from doubt and guilt, you see. And that's good news. That's good news. Because of Jesus' faithfulness and his love, because of his sacrifice, to the degree that he died for you personally, you will trust him and you will delight in him. For the joy, he says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. To the degree that it was Jesus' thrill to lower himself, limit himself, suffer and die for you, it will be a thrill to then live 
and sacrifice and lower yourself for him. You know, I'm going to close. One of my favorite movies is uh, probably a movie that not a lot of people have watched. Um, but it was a very highly touted movie, won some Oscars. It was Lincoln. came out pretty recently. And uh, there's this part uh, towards the end of the movie, the Civil War is now over, and the delegates from the South have now come to the North, and Lincoln meets with them. And basically, he tells them, because they're still trying to negotiate with him, and he says, listen, guys, it's over. He literally says that. He says, guys, it's over. Slavery, it's done. And then he stops and he says in a very tender way, I guess the way he must have said it, he says, if you submit, if we submit ourselves to the law and even submit to losing and sacrificing certain freedoms, we may discover other freedoms previously unknown to us. It's a beautiful line. Delight yourselves in the Father. Submit to him. Let's pray.